here's my premise to start out with. Are you ready? Well, look here. You notice religion can be a little odd. Is that fair to say? At the risk of offending everybody, religion can be odd. One of my favorite classes in seminary was uh, comparative world religions. I think it was the name of it. I don't remember the actual name or whatever. But that, what we did was we went to different religious shrines, temples, whatever they were called, different world religions. We went to a Buddhist area, we went to a Hindu place, we went to a Muslim uh, temple, whatever you call them. I should know, shouldn't I? I'm the preacher. Thank you. Well, I don't think it was a full mosque. It was just kind of like a religious thing. Fascinating stuff. Probably the most interesting, is that the right word? Yeah, we'll go with interesting, was the Hindu temple. You walk in and sort of a, a large open room, and around the edges were different statues, different gods of different kinds. And in, mo- in front of most of them was a, a platter or a plate with various food items. Some were vegetarian, just, just based on what was there. Others were meat eaters. Um, and, and you would go and you would put, they would come daily, the, the priests in this Hindu temple would come daily and offer the different things that had to be placed there. Sometimes pilgrims would come in and, and do their thing. In the middle of the room was a, a rope that I guess was attached to a bell. He rang it for us, which was very exciting. I don't know what it meant. I'm sure it had significance in their in their setting. And then he asked us about our faith, and we mentioned we were from the Baptist seminary, and he said, what's your holy book? And we said, the Bible. He goes, oh, I have one. Come with me. And we went into the next room, big library, and on in this huge, but a good-sized library, and just about any religious text you could imagine was in their library. They were very open to all sorts of different ideas, different teachings, including Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, and he pulled the Bible off and asked some of us what our favorite verses were, what our favorite parts were. I don't know if he used the word verses, because that's kind of the way we refer to it, not him. And, and it was quite a fascinating conversation. So we had that experience, a, a religion that sort of was anything goes and whatever makes you happy is fine with us, to some that we went in and, and it felt like they were trying to convert us, which is really fascinating because we were seminary students studying for masters in religion and you know, we thought it was kind of bold. In fact, I, I have some friends that haven't been in a while locally, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, you probably haven't met some of them, and they would come by our house and I would usually take the time to talk to them. We would have quite the good conversation. They would give me their magazines. By the way, I always take their magazines. Here's why. In that same world religions class, our professor said, always take the magazines because if they give it to you, they can't give it to somebody else. There you go. I thought it was good. So I always take them and give them their due consideration. Like every Saturday, every other Saturday, he would come and we would have a conversation. And, and, and one time he asked me, are you affiliated with the church? I'm like, where did you get the name? Why would you say, I mean, you know, I just live on the property kind of a thing. I said, yes. And I, I think, I don't know, this is my guess, is that he was hoping that somehow if he like convinced the Baptist preacher to become part of his faith, he got like brownie points with God. And maybe, if you're familiar with that faith, you'd be in those special select 144,000 group backs. They got to go up to heaven. 
sounds like you. Especially women in the store, we still say hi. That's not a thing. But, you know, religious expression varies from all sorts, and it can get odd. There, there are old religious expressions that are very mystical, very internal, meditative, uh, um, and, and that sort of thing. There are, in religion, rather superstitious things that happen. Why is religion kind of hand-in-hand with superstition, because at the core of religious thought is the idea that we're trying to make sense of what is inherently nonsensical, what we can't see or touch. It's, it's something that's out there that we kind of have an idea might be out there. We're trying to make the, the intangible more tangible. And, and really, if we're honest, superstition is just a way to exert control over that which we feel no control over. Like if we do these things in these ways... Somehow, whatever is out there might be placated enough that we'll be blessed or, or, or we'll do it. And that's why, you know, different faiths, different religions in history have done things to make sure they had good crops. They've offered certain sacrifices in certain ways to certain gods. Then the rains would come at the right time. Not too much, not too little, and the crops would grow, and they could, they could have uh, prosperity in that way. Or, or they would do that for... Fertility in their family, certain sacrifices done certain ways, uh, brought about fertility in children and, and, well, free labor, right? You know, obviously that's not what, was what I was when my parents got there, but nonetheless. Um, and, and so you have these things. Now, you would think, well, we're, we're Christians at a Baptist church. Surely we don't have superstitions. Surely the Christian religion doesn't have superstitions. Well, here's one. And, and it's, it's, I told you, like I said, I was shooting for everybody, so don't feel like you're alone. Um, this is one thing that I, I grew up with. Never put anything on top of the Bible. Anybody else raised with that kind of idea? Yes. Like, one time I sat down and I think I had the, the unmitigated gall to put a drink, because I didn't realize it was a Bible. I put my drink closer and slammed it. I had eyelids on it. Like, You don't have to read the Bible. Just don't put anything on top of it, right? That's what I mean. Another kind of Christian superstition, I'm calling it superstition. Again, I'm not trying to offend. I'm just giving you my perspective. Um, it happened when we were up in uh, the Newport Richmond Carson Springs area. It was really fascinating in that I believe what happened was this, biz, uh, this uh, commercial building had its windows washed. And in the process of cleaning the windows, one of the windows, in one of the windows, appeared the face of Mary, or Jesus, one or the other, I'm not sure which one. And people flocked to that commercial building from all over the place. I mean, you couldn't get near it for the first couple of weeks because the parking lot, some of the businesses had to sort of take a time out because they couldn't park and get into their office because all these pilgrims had come to this building because the face of one of their icons had appeared in this glass in the thing. And I'm just amazed by that. They would leave things around. They would leave uh, uh, flowers and, and different, like, makeshift shrines that were there. And it took a month or so before it was sort of back to normal. And then for even weeks after that, people would still come to this building to see the thing that, that was in the window. It was really fascinating to me that that was such an attraction. And religion has that aspect 
that it draws us to do certain things just to make sure we don't offend or anger the gods or God who has that pleased you. Now, on the other side, and maybe this is something more you and I can relate to as as Baptists, as Christians, religion can also have a very, uh, well, legalistic face to it. Like there are certain rules that you have to follow, and you have to follow them closely. And if you don't follow them, God doesn't like you, and I probably don't either. Kind of a thing. You know, that if you don't do it just right, you don't wear, wear certain things or, or do certain things in your services, or, or however it is, we have these very legalistic things that define our behavior in all sorts of ways, and, and, and that's it. And, and interestingly enough, when we read the gospel account of Jesus' life, the thing that sort of got under his skin the most, it seems like, from time to time, was when he came up against those who were very legalistic, and he just kind of tasted that because he saw that that external adherence to to the law, in that case, the, the Old Testament law, really didn't gel with how they treated people. And, and we get down to kind of the next level, as legalism often comes hypocrisy. Like, nobody can do it as well as you pretend to. So if I were to come by today, and I, I came by, and I'm not saying this is you, this is just in general, so this isn't aimed at anybody, but if you come to church on a Sunday, and I ask you how you're doing, what's the right answer? I'm fine. I'm good. Hallelujah. Happy to see you, Pastor. Amen. And, and my, that's my answer to you usually, too. I could have a lousy morning. Things could be going wrong. But I know when I walk across that parking lot in the church world, that would be everything. Even if there's struggle, even if there's pain, even if there's doubt about things, and that sort of thing. And so out of religious expression can come this idea of we can be just a little bit something is, the more religious it appears. For instance, um, a few years ago, uh, you may have read a book by Dan Brown um, that's called The Da Vinci Code. And one of the key players in that book is the monk who's trying to help this group kind of keep under wraps and things that are going on. And he was a part of a sect in the book that was called Opus Dei. And what was remarkable about that, because this particular sect practice, a rather centric practice of, of uh, well, what's the word? They would, he would self-flagellate, he would at night take off the stain and get himself to identify with the sufferings of Christ. He wore sort of like a sharp braided thing on his on his leg that every time he, he walked or took a step, it would, it would puncture and it would seal the stain to identify with the, the sufferings of Christ. There was value in identifying that. We, we just came out of Easter and Good Friday and thinking about those things, but what we see though, and that's just one example um, from popular literature, there are all sorts of things. People uh, cut their hair a certain way. If I had hair, I could put a little ponytail right here, you know, and this, that, that would be, and they would, you know, wear certain clothing. You may have years ago, I don't know if you can do it anymore because the rules have changed at airports, but they would often hang out at airports if you were following along. And they would, you know, these are, and we would, these, and, and then the, the idea was because what we're doing is so different and so hard, it must be religious.
religious. It must be right. And we're the only ones willing to go to these extremes, so therefore we must be right. And in the name of religion, these things happen. And here's the, the sad thing, is, is often a religious practice and experience can get in the way of getting to know God. And when we go back to the earliest days of Christianity, right after Jesus had lived and taught, right after he had died and resurrected, right after the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, some of the things we just sang about in that song, those things that were are sort of central to our faith, if you go back to those days and see how the very first followers of Christ, the very first Christians did things, you don't see a lot of these parts of religion in it. You don't see the superstition. You don't see the, the legalism. You see a different kind of thing. You almost see the kind of, of faith that was very compelling, compelling enough that when they went around the known world and talked about their faith, people gave up their background, their religious heritage, their religious expression to be a part of this new group of believers in Jesus Christ who were going all over the known world telling people about their faith. Probably one of the, the most influential and certainly the, the most widely traveled was Paul. We talked about last week, uh, looked at his conversion story where he told how he went from being a follower of, of the Jewish law and a leader and a Pharisee in that, to meeting Christ and following Jesus. And his whole life changed. He goes from persecuting and trying to kill people that say they're following Jesus to being the one who goes the furthest in that part of the world, starting new churches. Not only did he go further, but he went out of the particularly Jewish confines of Israel. He went to the, the more Greek and Roman parts of the world with a different culture and different religious expression and there shared this gospel, this message of faith in Jesus Christ, which was pretty radical to do because he had spent his whole life focused on one particular way, one particular kind of religious expression. And he's going to people that have all sorts of ideas, and there's one passage in the book of Acts that we're going to look at today. It's in Acts chapter 17 where he speaks to people who are very religious and offers them some insight into how they can take their religious curiosity and focus it on something more specific. Acts 17, we're going to begin at about verse 16 in just a minute. Paul is in uh, the city of Athens, obviously a city in Greece, very Greek place with a Greek culture influenced by the Roman uh, rule of that time and that day. And so because of that, they have a very Greek way of viewing things, a very Roman way of viewing things. They have a bunch of gods. In fact, you probably remember from high school or college, you studied the different gods that, that they had. And you knew that you had this, and I had a situation where you had to know the Roman name and the Greek name for the gods that kind of covered the same thing. And I'd forgotten all that in my mythology letter or mythology of mine. But nonetheless, that's kind of how we did it. And Paul goes into that culture talking about his faith and, and how he does it is particularly enlightening. It tells us that in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, it gives us a little background. It says this. I think the verses are going to pop up here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, meaning some of his companions had been examined, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
So Paul being Jewish comes out of the Jewish tradition and their central confession, the Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, monotheistic faith. So his whole life he had focused on one God, and now he's in a place where they have numerous gods. Not only that, one of the top ten commandments is you shouldn't fashion an idol, a graven image in the likeness of God. And apparently they have not only broken that commandment, they've broken it in spades. Full of idols. Everywhere you look, maybe it's much like that, that Hindu temple I went in. There's idols all over the place to different gods for different reasons, for different purposes. And it, it greatly distresses them. Now, now we would think, well, of course he's distressed because he's a good Jewish person. He's a follower of Jesus. He's upset. He's mad at them. He's upset that they don't hold the truth. Well, that may be somewhat true, but I think the idea of distress here isn't I'm frustrated with you, like how dare you, but it's like a distress of compassionate response to a people. Because obviously with all these idols, they want to know something about the unknowable. They, they have sought out some way to connect to a God that they can't see or touch, to a God that they acknowledge is active somehow, somewhere in their world, but they don't know how to quite relate to him. And so they've come up with these ways. So when you hear him say, or when you see this say distress, think of it that way, a compassionate response to their seeking after God. The next verse tells us in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? We've all had that experience, right? We're trying to make a point and it just doesn't make sense. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Well, they were okay with that because they had a bunch of gods. Seems to be talking about another one. He can't quite make sense of it. And they said this because Paul was saying something very specific. He was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When you look at the book of Acts, this account of the earliest followers of Jesus, time after time after time, when you boil down their message, this is what it was. Jesus came. He was crucified. He rose again. You should believe him. It's kind of the, the, the core of what they said. He walked this earth. He was a real person. He was killed on a Roman cross. But even though he was dead and buried, he came back to life and validated all that he said. And so because of that, you should follow him. He's preaching the resurrection. Why is that significant? Because Paul isn't going in to argue theology. He's not wanting to talk about philosophical truth. He's saying, I want to talk about what actually happened. I want to talk current events. I want to talk life, reality. Just down the road, you could go there yourself. You could talk to people who saw the things that I'm telling you about, who were in the town that it happened when it happened, who knew Jesus, who heard him teach, who saw him crucified, and who he appeared to as resurrected. I'm talking about what happened. Deal with the reality of, of actually what would make the news if it was broadcast in your town. Let's get out of the esoteric, philosophical, theological, and let's get to the very reality of what's happening right now in history not too far away from us. He preached, and the whole early church uh, preaching was focused on that, Jesus and the resurrection. Next, next verse, verse 6. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
and, and make those presents for the church at home. So you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then the next verse tells us kind of what this Areopagus was about. It says this, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest ideas. Now that's a job, isn't it? There you go. Let's just get together and talk. We are so wealthy and powerful and secure, we just get together and we talk about the latest things. We're very curious, too. We want to know what's happening. We want to kind of ferret out the, the wrong ideas and focus on the right ideas, so we just get together and we just talk about these things, these latest ideas. And this philosophical area, this philosophical culture of, of Greece, that, that would be right up their alley. They want, to, they want to hash it out. They want to make sure they have it right. So, so that's where... Paul is going. He's going before this body. If this is what they do, they talk about and listen to the latest ideas. They're going to give him an audience because they want to know whether they should let him to keep talking in the area or not, or if they want to kind of maybe say, okay, your ideas aren't valid. Your ideas don't have merit. Go away and leave us alone. The next verse, Paul gets to stand up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. Well, that's a good place to start talking to people that their culture has lots of gods and lots of religious things. I want to identify with them a little bit. Several years ago, we went to uh, Uruguay on a mission trip. Gosh, that was a lot of years ago. How many years ago was that? Ten now? I don't know. Anyway, we went to Uruguay. One of the fascinating things about that culture was, was, was the encounters we had with religion in Uruguay. Like, for instance, as you get in the, the van or the truck or whatever we were riding in and go down the street, you would see uh, sacrifices on street corners. Or I think a few of them were, like, actually in the middle of the street. They were strategically placed. There were certain spots that pretty much any time you were in that area, in that city, Montevideo, Uruguay, you could go to that spot and see a little little sacrifice, usually charred because it had been burned. And, and that's just what they did. They expressed their religion that way. These places were important had to do, I think, with a pentagram, actually, had something to do with people trying to memorize it. And then this was this was the interesting part. One, we were in a, a little barrio, a little very poor uh, neighborhood, and one night we were there late, we were doing some things in the area, and as we were leaving, we drove by, we were in a truck, just had a very poor area, so not, the roads weren't great, you know, potholes, uh, kind of, well, the sewage sort of just runs down the street channels, just one of those things, sorry, it's got to give you a picture, are you with me? Kind of the issue there. And so we're in the truck, and we're driving by, and there's a house on this side, and the house is a relative kind of a, a structure that people lived in on this side, and they are doing some religious ceremony in the yard. Now, we've been told this is a, a culture like some of the Latin culture that have, I don't want to say voodoo, but sort of that kind of bent to some of their religious expression, and so they were there and, and doing their thing, and, and uh, we drive by, and as we're looking at it, in the front yard, there's these people in robes wandering around, they're around the fire, they're doing something, and of course, at that second, the truck gets stuck. there are people in this neighborhood that don't want us there. They have a hold on this neighborhood. The people that that this this uh, leader, witch, religious leader, whatever the title was, she had influence. And these people wanted to be invited to this ride at her house. And we were interfering with 
what was partly your livelihood, partly your income, and certainly your influence in the community. Now we're building a church and we're telling people about Jesus and we break down like this is not the end of the story. I've never seen a group of gringos in South America move faster than how we got out of that truck and picked it up out of the ditch and put it over here and drove off. Because, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit was in us. We were ready. that religion was ingrained in because most cultures everywhere are somewhat religious. In fact, there aren't many places you can go that you couldn't say that you are religious. There's that thing inside of humanity that, that strives for an answer to these kind of questions. So Paul starts out by saying, I see that you're very religious. And then he says in the next verse, this is why I know you're religious. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, so it says in the first verse, or in one of the first verses, he's distressed by all the idols. But this tells us how his distress kind of works itself out. He looks carefully at their objects of worship. He's trying to understand where they're coming from, what they feel, what they think, what they believe. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. So you're very religious but you want to make sure you cover all your bases. So you've got this particular idol, this particular altar with an inscription because you recognize in all the things that you think you've kind of figured out that, that you kind of know about how fertility works or how crops work or how the rains work. And if you do these things, it sort of works in your favor. There's a part of your idea of, of things that, that are out there in the spiritual realm that you don't know, so you're hedging your bets. You're like, okay, just in case... This God, who does things that we don't quite understand, ever shows up and says, why isn't there a statue for me? You can go and say, well, it's right over here. We just didn't know you needed it. It's right here. No, really, we were ready, just in case you ever came. That's kind of the way he's saying, right? I mean, religion's kind of odd. But, you know, we live in a culture where a lot of people do things religiously just in case. You know, we want to make sure we cover our base. We want to make sure we, we, we don't leave anything out. For instance, what are the two biggest days of attendance in churches? Easter and Christmas. But most people look for a church to go. Part of it's because that's a traditional time of worship, but part of it is sort of a maybe, a just in case, want to make sure. I might not think about it much during most of my life, but just in case, like, Christmas is legit, I'm going to go. People give money. People make donations to churches. I, I've dealt with business people when they come. We ask them to, to, to help us. You know, they'll, they'll uh, actually have one guy who was fascinating. One man who, who works on a, a property out here doing some things outside. And he says, you know, well, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a really good price because just in case, that's what he used to say, that's what he used to say, just in case God, like, can reward me. If you could put in a good word for me, tell, tell God that, that you got a really good deal on this work I'm doing. That would be helpful for me. Now, a lot of people give things to the church because they, they want to give. And it's not, not everything that's given is that way. But in that case, it, it struck me. And that's a conversation that I've had before with, with people. And maybe it's because I'm a preacher. So I, and, and here's the bad news if you're not used to that part of this world. Um, I, I don't have a special connection with the people in this church. There's nothing. I, I could put in a good word for you the same way you can put in a good word for me. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd be appreciative. We're, we're on the same footing here. I'm not, a, a, 
as a preacher, there's nothing special. I don't have closer access to God. The same Jesus who died for your sins had to die for my sins, because I got sinless. And the same Jesus who is our mediator between God and man is your mediator. And so your prayers are just as effective as mine. Your offering to God is just as effective. There's nothing that, that I have standing-wise to offer. You don't. And so, but there are these religious ideas that somehow there's this hierarchy. You want to make sure we, we, we just in case do this or do that or do the other thing because we don't want to miss anything just in case we have to stand in front of this God one day and give an account. So Paul says, what you're not sure about, I want to tell you the specific thing. And he starts by telling him this. He says in this verse, the God who made the world and everything in it, so he's starting really big, like really basic, foundational, the God who made everything, the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. So as he looks around at different idols, and as, as in that Greek and Roman world, they had temples to this god or this goddess. Paul is saying, God doesn't live there. In fact, that's interesting for him to say, because as a Jew, he had a temple in Jerusalem. And it was the focal point of all of their worship. Everything that they did centered around the temple and the sacrificial system. And in history, at certain times, God had made tangible to manifest His presence there. Some people call it the Shekinah glory of God. It would be smoke and fire that would hover over the, the tabernacle or later at times the temple, like at the dedication of these structures. And it was obvious this God is here. And, and inside the temple, in the, in the inner place, the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And the, the idea was God sat enthroned on that. And Paul had come to, to this by his whole upbringing, his whole religious system had been focused on that. And now he's saying the opposite. God doesn't live in any structure built by hands. God is bigger than that. We have a church here. A lot of times I'm, I'm stuck because I'm kind of in this, I've straddled a couple of generations. Because I grew up in church world. I, from the time I was born, I was on payroll roll and was baptized very young. And my dad was a deacon. I did the whole church world thing. And so when you went to church, the, the room you met in was called the sanctuary, the, the holy place. And, but that's a very sort of Old Testament, God lives in this building place. Now, the, the newer nomenclature is... Uh, worship center or auditorium. And if you're like me, you're not sure if you like that either, because you kind of like the idea that, that there's something special about this room, but when you think about it, theologically that's not the case. That God isn't contained in these walls, that there's not something about this place. In fact, when Jesus came and died, you know, that veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, signifying that which used to separate from God has been removed, and then he sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They come like flames of fire, and they, they went out, and 3,000 people were added to the earliest followers of Jesus on that day. The idea being, and Paul says it elsewhere, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the temple isn't a structure somewhere that, that we as God's followers, those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, become the temple of his Holy Spirit, that he indwells our 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 bodies, and we should take that and, and live with that reality. So the reason this place is kind of neat isn't because God lives in buildings, because God lives in you as followers of Jesus, and the church is coming together in 
And so we ensure that all are gathered in his name and so that all integrity is preserved by the truth. That could even work so much more. God, if we just says, I will be in the midst of you, even though that was busted because of the Muslim declaration, let's back what Jesus said. I'm talking to you. How cool is that? So, Paul says, this God that you say is unknown, I'm telling you, he's a lot bigger than you think he is. He doesn't live in, in some structure, some building. He's bigger than that. Like, he made everything. He goes on in the next verse and adds a little bit to that, and he says this. As, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So all of these gods, all of these idols, much like that, that Hindu place I went to with, with the plates, and, and the people brought and, and served God because, you know, God might be hungry if there were only two there. Or here's something, people would bring money and put it in front of God. Hey, look, this is what we just gave you. Now they're nothing. But it wasn't there the next time they came. But we could offer something to God, or we could make with our hands something that represented a God who's so much bigger than we could ever imagine. Paul says, that's not how this God works. He goes on in the next verse and says this, For one from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. The next verse tells us this, God did this. Why did God do all this? Why did God make mankind? Why did he, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and even find him, though he is not far from each of us. That's why wherever you go in the world, no matter how advanced or how primitive cultures become, there is some expression of religion in them. There's some way they're trying to seek out and connect with the God or gods as they might that's out there somewhere. Mankind naturally, there's something about us that has us do that. I think that something about us is that we are all made in the very image of God, which allows us the capacity to relate to God in a way that that being an image bearer of His, we naturally crave that connection with the one whose image we bear. And so something inside of humankind, no matter where you find them, is somehow seeking a way to reach out God, but Paul says, no, look, he's not far away. And he goes on and, and, and elaborates on that in the next verse. He says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So this is just another example. Even your culture is looking for God, unknown God, and these kind of things. The next verse says this, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver, or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than you can imagine. The next verse is this. In the past, this sounds mean, doesn't it? God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. you got to say it like that. Just like, hey, teach us that in seminary. You can say this one. It's like, I was just going to say gravitas here, right? Repent. What does repent mean? Quit behaving that way and go the other way. It means straighten up and act right. That's how we kind of think. Repent, we say it that way because it's sort of a confrontational word. You're wrong, you need to get right. I remember youth group. One of the best speakers of skill I remember. This is how he put it. You've probably heard these things. When he was preaching about salvation, he says, you better turn. You know the rest, right? Or you're going to burn. Here's my favorite. 
You better get sanctified or you're going to be Ferenchified. There you go. Use that on your neighbor. See how it works. It's a good, like, church girl thing. But that's kind of the the idea behind repent. You better change it or God's going to get you for it. But but Paul in this context is also telling him the idea is you need to to change your thinking. You need to think differently about it. Now, repent, you know, we've talked about it in other contexts. It sort of has a literal meaning to turn around and go the other way, a a 180-degree turn, a a reorientation of your life. It starts with the way you think about things, the way you view things, particularly in this context, the way they viewed God and how he was this or that or the other, or how you couldn't know him. He says, no, you need to repent of that ignorance. Not like you're just ignorant, but you just don't know things. You admit you don't know things because you have an idol to an unknown God. So give up that ignorance and turn and repent and think about things differently. He goes on and says this, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. There we come back to that central point of the earliest followers of Jesus. If you want me to tell you why I believe what I believe, why I'm here talking about Jesus, why I left the Jewish faith that I was once so passionately a part of, to be a follower of Jesus or part of the way as it was known, it's because there was this man who lived, was crucified, and is now alive. And that just doesn't happen. And I can't get past that, that he was dead and now he is alive. And because of that, it's changed everything. I can't think about, I can't act, I can't proceed the same way I have all of my life. I've got to follow this one. And he went from, again, that philosophical, theological argument to current events. This is what happens. How do you explain, how do you react, how do you deal with what happened in history not too far from here that people could tell you about because they saw it with their own eyes? Ground it. That's what he says. And that is the centerpiece of their message. about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them foolish in that city. Because not everybody thinks that is like an actual thing that happens. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Next verse. At that, Paul left the council. Is that the end? Or am I getting there? No, there's one more verse. Okay. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Is that the last one? book here I could look at. But now I'm going to so, so back on Paul, like a hero of Christianity, the church starter of the first century, went further than anybody else, pushed the boundaries of Christianity further than anybody else. We would assume, and, and maybe the way you rank it, certainly Jesus is important, Son of God, top of the food chain. But Paul is right up there. 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, letters he wrote and left. And as great as his ministry was, I think this is fascinating to read, because Paul preached to these people, and it wasn't like there was an incredible response. A few, some sneered, some said, ah, maybe I'll hear more, and some, or very few, actually turned and followed him. Interesting. Fascinating. We can relate to that, right? 
can do that. You can go out and try to live your life and try to tell other people about your faith, about Jesus who came in history and lived and died for your sins and rose again. And some people go, Revolutionary message. It's against so much of what religion is about. Because in religion, we're seeking for who's right. How many faiths are there in the world? Who's to get faith? How many Christian denominations are there? Who's right? And oh, it's great. Even in denomination, our denomination, the Southern Baptist. Back, kind of had a falling out in good fights, and, and we thought, okay, we kind of got past that, the issues of conservative and liberal and Bible and all that, and sort of made things, and now there's a whole new set of fights that are coming up. Are you this or are you that? Are you on this side of this theological debate? Are you on that side? And, and, and there's all this in religion about who's right. And maybe the better question is, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? Who, let's, let's talk about him, who he is, what he did. We're not as fortunate as Paul. We can't say, listen, not too far from here just a few years ago. But but we can point people to what happened. As opposed to, and I love debate theology. One of my favorite classes in there was systematic theology. Because I like to take all this complicated stuff and make it make sense. Like, give me a file cabinet for it. I can pull out this drawer and say, oh, this is my Christology drawer. This is my theology drawer. This is my eschatology drawer. This is my ecclesiology drawer. If you write in your chat room. I mean, there's so many ologies we learned in, in seminary. I wanted to, I want to put the cards in the right order. I want to make sure it all adds up. I want to be a system. But the truth I trust is God's not in a box. I'm in the systematic theology box. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than ours. So even the brightest thinkers, and there's some incredible theologians that have written over the history of the world, and even now, there are writings. When you read them, God is limited in that it's a finite human mind trying to comprehend the infinite. That which cannot be comprehended by, by human minds or, or served by hands or contained in temples. And I know comprehended came up again in the news in the news. God cannot I love that. But, but maybe it's not about Let's talk about what happened in history. Who is Jesus? What happened? So many people in religion ask, what does God want from us? You know what our message is the opposite. Here's what God did for us. People say, what sacrifice can I make to God? And we say, no, no, no. You need to understand, this is the sacrifice God made for you. It turns it upside down and stands it on its head, the message that we this man in history, this Jesus, this one called to die, this man who lived a sinless life, you and me, oh, we can't live that way. But he did. Tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says, yet without sin. He died. 
got up early and went to the beach and watched the sunrise. And then he went out in the water and were baptized, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In that, we, we celebrate this message, not this system of thought, not this religion, but this man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God who became flesh, who lived and died. And the message of Paul over and over, and the message of the first century church over and over is the same that John the Baptist, in light of who he is and what he did, what he did. He's not questioning whether he's God beyond, okay, somebody who lived better than I ever could, perfectly before God, somebody who died that way for me and rose again, at the very least, that deserves some investigation. or legalistic or kind of mystical that we talked about. I don't know where you find yourself on that continuum or how you would think about it, but here's what I would invite you to consider.
for someone who needs to know that grace, I pray that they would come to you in faith. And Duke, even if you're yet there, can you come? Change their way of thinking and living. The way they tried to approach religion of what can I do for God and realize that you have asked me to do something for us. And that they would place their faith in your son. Thank you that you hear our prayer. Thank you that you answer when we call. Thank you that you show up with real grace. As we come to our time of soft invitation, Lord, may you hear our prayers even now. And as we sing a song of praise to you, and as we consider what you have done through Jesus. Give me that evening.